0: And welcome to the Popcorn Tennis Podcast. I am your host, Nick, and I'm here with my usual co-host, Trihiri, as well as occasional co-host, Jethro. <laughs> uh, Jethro, I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Um, and we've also joined by uh, our guest to, for the show about um, one of our favourite Russian players, Daniel Medvedev. Um, it is the wonderful
1: May. May, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing well. You know, uh, lots of lots of Danielle action in the past two weeks, so lots to talk about today.
0: Sure, lots of highs and lows. Uh, yes,
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah. kind of, kind of, like an encapsulation of what the past like year has been like in Daniil land. I think. I would say it's probably been better than the previous year to be fair because let's face it he's actually winning titles well this is Los Cabos erasure he did win a title in Los Cabos but yeah it has been like a bit of a rough year but um I think Paris um was a little less good than I wanted it to be as, as a fan but such is the way the cookie crumbles
0: <laughs> we should talk about uh, Daniel Medvedev in more detail Jethro is also on to talk about Dominic Team. We're going to do a special episode combining the two players. uh, And we'll be talking about uh, sort of our perspectives on their careers and why our guests are fans of them. um, And also, uh, maybe also compare them to others of their generation Uh, the uh, the 1990s generation, uh, which is uh, semi represented um, on this call as well. So um, let's start with Daniel Medvedev. Uh, May, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you became a fan of Mr. Medvedev?
1: Yes, so um, I started out watching tennis, Wimbledon of 2021, and I was a really big Stefano Tsitsipas fan, and everybody on Twitter, which I just discovered had tennis content, was talking about this guy called Daniil, and I was like, who is this man? Um, and then I found, you know, the small kid that can't fight drama and I was extremely entertained because I've always loved the Real Housewives franchise and this felt like something straight out of that. And I was like, I found my new fixation. I found my new interest. Um, and I think it was really Daniil's wit, um, and the way that he makes matches entertaining for me that drew me into tennis itself. So in a way, my interest in tennis and my interest in Daniil are very intertwined. Yeah. Okay, what year was this? This was 2021. I'm like very new to tennis, so this is why I'm excited to talk about team as well because I was not around for like his sort of peak, you know. So
2: that's you missed a a lot. You missed a a very, very good era of tennis. Dominic team's peak is what I'll say. I,
1: I feel like I'm about to learn a lot, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Okay,
0: <laughs> so obviously it's about Daniel's personality. Although I'm interested, obviously, Daniel drew you into tennis when you yes. joined Twitter as someone who kind of liked Stefanos Tsitsipas. So yes. you obviously knew who he was already. Um, yeah. I know this is not a podcast about him, so I'm not going to make this a long thing. But how did you discover Stefanos Tsitsipas?
1: Um, so I have a friend that's really into tennis, and her sister like, has like, a thing for Stefanos. So she was like, oh, you should follow him on Instagram. And he has a very big social media presence and he like vlogs a lot. Um, And as someone, you know, that was not very big on like sports at all, the idea of like someone that played sports, vlogging and interacting in social media in that way, it was really novel. And I was like, wow, this could be something that I would be interested in. Um, So yeah, then I fell down a rabbit hole evidently.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. And then you uh, discovered... Um, maybe his greatest rival, Daniel Medvedev. They um, yes. certainly have a very contrasting style. Um, I actually uh, really enjoy Medvedev for much the same reasons as you for that sort of sarcastic persona, the personality that he shows as being kind of genuine. I think the moment I actually um, decided I liked him was him trolling the crowd at the 2019 US Open. The more you boobie, the better I get.
2: Um, oh, yes.
3: Yes,
0: absolutely loved it. Of course, that, that, that was iconic,
3: drew a lot of uh, fans towards him.
0: It yeah. worked. Although, having said that, do we think that um, maybe this sort of pantomime villain persona that he ends up creating has kind of worked against him a little bit?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. Especially we saw like the Australian Open of this year. Um, I think that ultimately like it became too much, like working against the crowd. Um, and then also, I mean, I don't want to get like too political on like a tennis podcast, but I think like the Russian invasion has not helped the way that like the crowd interacts and perceives him and has you know made that a more tenuous relationship, I would say.
2: Yeah, that's fair.
0: Uh, I would agree. I think a lot of people look at the nationality and don't look at the person a lot. We saw that with the discourse around uh, Elena Rabakina winning Wimbledon. Um, and everyone kind of... Uh, that, that's really, in my opinion, dumb discourse that followed. But let's not get too political. We're here to talk about yes. um, tennis. Um, mm-hmm. So, May, do you want to give us some personal highlights of Daniel's tennis? Um, yeah not just his uh, I mean you can include some on-court outbursts as well if they happen on a tennis court sure we'll allow it um any what what would you say are kind of your the highlights from Daniel's career that really stand out to you
1: um to me I think I guess I'm more interested in like the meta arc that his career takes than like a particular like he scored this point really well um like I'm very drawn in by the fact that I know like the term late bloomer is like somewhat controversial on some circles of tennis, tennis, Twitter, like what constitutes a late bloomer. But I think considering like where his peak is now, like he started out his ascendancy later than his peers, which maybe this is for like a later part of the podcast. But I find that incredibly fascinating because the way that I've always approached sport is viewing it um, as sort of like, this is a thing that young people do you know, there's this big emphasis on prodigies. So the fact that you see him sort of like start to break out in 2019 um, and really accelerate that rise in 2020. And then obviously in 2021, um, making multiple slam finals before winning the US Open. um, All of that was very impressive given when, you know, it all started at that point in his career.
0: Yeah, it's weird that sport is a world where we don't consider 23 to be young. Um, especially since I'd have a couple of people on this call that getting close to that particular number. Um, so, uh, yeah, but you're, you're right. I think that arc is, it, it, it is late bloomer, as you would call it. it. It is. I remember looking at sort of breaking down rankings by age group, just as a little, little project I did. Um, and uh, Medford dev was not one of the top-ranked, 21 and unders coming up like he was in the top 10 towards the end of his uh time as a sort of late teen early 20s um but he wasn't as talked about as 60 pass or zverev or um rude um, that were um, coming up maybe rude's a bit younger but you know what i mean um so yeah that, that breakthrough nobody was surprised he was good but i don't think anyone thought he was that good um so it was um so it was interesting, I mean, um Sihiri, do you remember much of um dev breaking through like that, and what's kind of caught your eye in terms of moments from his career?
3: Yeah, I should allude to this uh, discourse that you and Maya just had that, you know, which is basically that uh at least compared to I wouldn't exactly use the term late bloomer uh but then compared to his main contemporaries on tour, that is Stefano Tsitsipas and Alexander Zverev. Yes, he's a later bloomer in comparison uh, because you had uh, Zverev and Tsitsipas, you know, in their early 20s, they were uh, already uh, knocking on the doors of the top 10. They'd made the top 10 as well. They were also, um, especially with Zverev's case, he was already a multiple-time Masters champion at, uh, at that age. He'd won the ATP Finals, uh, at 21, so uh, same same with Sitsi Pass and Medvedev, uh, he you know he pretty much broke in, into the top, top 15 when he was, I would say 22, um, and it, that was also and he is two years uh, older than Sitsi Pass and a year older than Zverev, and at that point he had uh, he had not been passed. Uh, I don't in 2018 I don't think he'd even reached the second week of a Slam yet at that point. Uh, and then then comes 2019. He finishes 20, 2018 at, I, I think, number 16, just a spot below Stefano Tsitsipas did, who was at number 15. And in 2019, Medvedev did make the fourth round at the Australian Open, You know, but then you had Tsitsipas beating Roger Federer in the fourth round, making it to the semifinals. Uh, he would follow that up by making the fourth run at RG as well, losing that epic 5 setters to Stanbaugh Rinka, whereas Medvedev was pretty much uh, losing early for a while since uh, the Australian Open all the way until, I would say, Washington um, in 2019. Of course, he had uh, a few good runs on grass before Wimbledon. I remember him making the semifinal in Queens. uh but yeah, that is when you know he just skyrocketed, especially in comparison to his rivals, because uh, going into the U.S. Open, he had made the final in Washington and Montreal. He had won Cincinnati beating Novak Djokovic from a set down in the semifinal. And he was, I think he, he had cracked the top five already. Going into the U.S. Open, he was one of the most talked about players. And I remember him clearly saying during the press conference that, uh, you know, he wouldn't put himself anywhere near the favorites because he, at that point, had not even made it past the fourth round of a grandstand. And we know uh, how iconic that run was, uh, mostly because of that third round match against Feliciano Lopez on uh a court, Louis Armstrong. And, uh, you know, he was getting booed and he sort of um, used it uh, in his favor, channeled uh, that energy. And, you know, he was also physically... Uh, pretty ragged, I would say. He, he even mentioned that he, took, he was on a lot of painkillers kill, that entire tournament. And he makes it to the final. He beats uh, Stan Wawrinka and Dimitrov back-to-back. He makes the final, down two sets and a break to Nadal. And the match ends with Nadal barely scraping past Medvedev 6-4 in the fifth, right? And we also saw that Medvedev had a couple of break points to lead in the fifth set with a break. Uh, and of course, he broke into the top four. He achieved something his rivals had not at that point, which is making a grand slam final. He was already a, a champion at a master's level. He would go on to in Shanghai as well. And sure, he was, I think, 23 at the time. But then, uh, you know, he's already pretty much uh, as accomplished, maybe as someone like, I would say more accomplished than both of them already. Um and then that that trend just continued, right? Twenty twenty, he did win the ATP Finals. He 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 won before that. He won his third Masters title, and that it. Uh, he was quite a streaky player, not uh, as consistent as he would have liked to be, at least compared to Sitsi Pasenswev were, but he put together a really consistent season last year, finishing in the top two, making. Uh, multiple Grand Slam finals, even winning one, being the only player to defeat Novak Djokovic at a Grand Slam last year. And I think that uh, season alone just really sets him aside from anything uh, his uh, contemporaries have done in their career, I would say. That is only Zverev and Pass. I wouldn't um, say that about team exactly because he has beaten Djokovic and Nadal at Grand Slams. He has beaten uh, the big three uh, five or more times, each of them. Uh, and of course he's, he's a grand slam champion and has won a master's titles. So, uh, team, of course we will get to him shortly, but he is more of the, I, I think he fits the term late bloomer better than Medvedev does. Uh, but yeah, I think, uh, and the, one of the main reasons why I was also drawn to Medvedev is that he was not nearly as hyped as Tsitsipas and Zverev were, uh, so I, I always like getting behind underdogs. It's sort of my tennis origin story um, because that's the reason why I got behind Novak Djokovic because um, he was the one guy trying to stop Federer and Nadal, that duopoly that they had uh, towards the late 2000s. And yeah, that's sort of my origin story as to how I became a, a huge Daniel Medvedev fan.
2: Yeah, I, I found um, Medvedevs kind of rise, really, really interesting. And then we going to Wimbledon with a friend in 2018. And um we we'd gone a couple of years ago and we first time we'd seen Borno Toric play, I think. And um we really, really liked him just because we thought he was really fiery and was playing Andreas Seppi, who we you know we were really big on. And um you know, we come back two years later and we see Borno Toric is playing as we get in. We're like, awesome, let's go watch him. And he got absolutely annihilated by this guy, Daniel Medvedev, who I'd never really heard of before. And he was just... And I think his game has changed since then, but at the time he was absolutely crushing the ball. Like, still really flat round strokes, but he was just absolutely annihilating it. Had a mean serve. And kind of kept my eye on him. And then I saw him, Australian Open 2019, gets fourth round with uh, with Djokovic. And he lost in four and he played fantastically. Um, And that was kind of where I really thought but I think this guy's actually going to be really good and people aren't talking about him at all and you know it's all about Zverev. it's paths, you know team was doing really well at the time and then he got to the Barcelona final as well so you know he's not just a hard player you know he's showing some really really excellent tennis on play and you know he played team in that final and I was a bit concerned I think he went full up in that in the first set and I was like oh god can't have team losing this this is this is quite a big final and then team started using the backhand slice and then didn't lose the game for the rest of the match. But I was very impressed with Medvedev's kind of commitment and level on the clay. Um, and then, yeah, we got to Cincinnati in that match against Djokovic and he just started raining down second serve aces against Djokovic, which I thought was so ballsy, so cool. And he won that match and he really deserved it. And, yeah, I wasn't surprised that he got to the 2019 US Open final. Um because he he was just playing brilliantly. And I was like, I think this guy's gonna be a real force on the on the North American art course for a long time. And yeah, he's he's still showing that now. Um yeah, I thought I thought his rise was really, really interesting. Um as as you guys have already said, yeah, he wasn't really hyped up like some sets spots were. But um I kind of enjoyed that about him. And it's it's really fun, you know, kind of holding in on these players early and kind of seeing something that no one else is talking about. Because then the years later, when they have big success, you can just be like, told you so. So that's always, that's always good fun.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think Medvedev's rise is a really great story. Um, like we said, it's just not all good in comparison. Uh, the point you made Trahiria about him being a streaky player is interesting, because I was thinking about it, like, no, you're absolutely right, because he's known for going on runs, and then going a bit absent, like 2019, we saw that he got a couple of good results on the play. not only did he get to that Barcelona final, as mentioned, mentioned, Djokovic in Monte Carlo, um, I'm pretty sure he did. Um,
3: and so Titsi was just the match before.
0: Yeah, so he was he was doing well in the this he always goes in the American Hardcore run, I mean, like, even this year, he wins the title in Los So he's going deep in American hard-court events, even if he's not necessarily winning them. Uh, with, I suppose, with Medvedev being streaky, we mentioned his more consistent 2021 season um, in comparison. Um, do we think that maybe the struggles he's had uh, this year, maybe, or the perceived struggles, is him maybe reverting to type a little bit more, but he's not getting consistent result throughout the year, like in 2021, but actually he's gone back to Going on runs and strong periods in certain weeks. And what do you think about that theory? Uh,
3: You know, either way, uh, uh, you know, even if that's the case, uh, if that's the kind of player he is, he's still always somehow good enough to uh, at least uh, what I hope is the case this season to at least finish in the top five. He's been finishing uh, in the top five or better, I think, the last three seasons. He finished number five in 2019. He finished number four in uh, 2020. I remember he dropped a six uh, just before St. Petersburg, if I'm not wrong. He obviously w- won Paris and uh, the ATP finals back to back, you know, to climb his way back up to the top four. Uh, of course, he spent majority of 2021 in, as number two. And, you know, in this year is... Been in a away for him because he went into a grandstand for the first time as the top favorite. That was the Australian Open. Uh, He got to world number one for the first time as well. But other than that, you know, there have been some circumstances that, uh, you know, I should point out that have not really gone his way and his sort of decline compared to last season in part uh, are due to reasons he really couldn't control. Of course, he. Had to get operated for a hernia back in March. Missed pretty much the entire clay season. Going into RG, still made the sec- uh, second week there uh, without dropping a set. Um, and yeah, that, I think that's you know quite a good performance for somebody who pretty, I, I wouldn't say is bad on clay, but hates clay so much with a passion. Um, yeah, so I, I I still think that somehow he would probably finish. At least in the top five, if not the top four, uh, this season. He does, I, I, I do think he has a chance to finish in the top four, uh, and it's not really a far fetched one, provided he does win the ATP finals. It depends also on Sitsipas and Rude, how they perform. Uh, and you wouldn't be too surprised if they did go out early uh, in the tournament, and Medvedev did go deep like he did the previous uh, two editions. So, yeah, maybe 2021 could sort of be the one-off, um, you know, in his career as far as seasons are concerned and as far as consistent seasons are concerned. But I still think what people tend to uh, sort of overlook is that he's still so good that he's you, you can bank on him to either go deep or win a big title or two every season at this point. He won multiple in... Uh, 2019 to 2021 of course not the case this year. He's not won a big title yet and if he is to win one, it's only going to be the ATP finals. That's the only tournament left for him on the ATP tour. Uh, and who knows, maybe going into next season he will have a lot less pressure on his shoulders, much like uh, how it was uh, towards the back end of 2020 going into the Paris Master- Masters with uh, having not made a final yet that season and then he has that incredible run all the way to the Australian Open final in 2021 the 20 match win streak beating eight top ten players on the way so uh yeah that's what I think I still think that he's he's so good that even uh an average season like 2022 he is in the top five right he's still having resu- uh, some really good results the losses have been mostly stinging and disappointing uh and head scratches to a lot of them but you know I, I still think that uh his best tennis is definitely not behind him uh, he can still he still has a few slams um ahead of him that he could win and definitely a lot more big titles and uh what's interesting is that there are only three big titles on on hard courts that he's yet to win he's won everything else um so I think uh, that is remarkable, um, and that that sort of reliability you don't see on a surface. I mean, it's, you can easily call him uh, somebody who relies uh, a lot on one particular kind of court and one particular kind of conditions. But you, nobody's as has been as reliable as he's been um, on their given favorite surface. You don't you don't see Sitsipas uh, being that good on clay. You don't see Zverev being that good you know, on clay, maybe his best surface, or uh, not to shade him, but Dominic team as well. Um, He's, the fact that he's not uh, won a master's title on a clay court, you know, in a way hurts him, uh, hurts his resume on the surface. Um, So I think in that way, he's done a really good job. And I would give him the edge there uh, in comparison to his sort of main rivals. Um, And another interesting story about Medvedev is that the first first time he made the final of uh, uh uh on the atp tour it was in my hometown chennai in 2017 uh, of, of course I, I barely followed him that year i was aware um i, I was aware uh that he beat wawrinka and uh, in his uh, to win his first ever match at a grand slam in wimbledon and that was probably one of, one of the Uh, those were probably the two highlights of his 2017 season um so yeah i guess that's uh, all i have to say about daniel
1: um yeah i'm wondering like what you think about uh this sort of discourse around pressure and medvedev because obviously his 2021 was amazing we are seeing the the slam that he won um and then eventually he in 2022 becomes world number one with a lot of points from 2021 um and i've seen a lot of speculation that the reason part of the reason why 2022 was less strong was because he was facing more pressure as like the favorite going into a lot of events or as world number one and i'm wondering how you think that might impact um his 2023
3: yeah that's interesting i i just it didn't hit me that he was the world number one in so many of those tournaments in north america especially cincinnati and the u.s open uh, he did play his first Grand Slam as the world number one there. Um, like I mentioned, uh, he does tend to play a lot better without that world number one slash top favorite tag uh, attached to him going into a tournament. Um, a good example would be the back end of uh, 2020, where he was, I think, number five. Nobody, nobody expected him to probably win another big title, and then he goes on that insane run. Uh, And if you've noticed, he always tends to sort of shy away from uh, claiming himself as the favorite, even this year at the Australian Open, when he was asked, with Novak gone, uh, would he consider himself as the top favorite, even though he was the highest ranked player left, he was number two. Um, and he did mention that it is, you know, he would say that Rafael Nadal is a top favorite because is won what 20, he'd won, he was a 20, 20 time stamp champion at the time. I think it's a way, it's uh, in a way, I don't know if it's the right term, but like defense mechanism for him. He just doesn't like uh, being uh, put in the spotlight as, you know, the prime favorite, the number one favorite going into any tournament. And largely that has been the case in, Every big title that he's won, um, I think a lot of people had Team as the favorite against him uh, in the ATP Finals 2020 final as well because Team, you know, had played just brilliantly in both of those both of uh, the editions in 2019 and 2020 back to back. He beat Djokovic uh, twice there. He beat Roger Federer. He beat Rafael Nadal. Uh, you know, he was just playing again. He was showing a really high level. Um, after you know not being not being anywhere nearly as comfortable on indoor hard courts, but still Daniel uh, you know came out uh, as the winner there even against Nadal in the semifinal. So it, that's one thing that is interesting to me is that all of the big titles and all of the big matches that he's won, he's never really been the favorite, and that's sort of the theme of his career is that no, but a lot not a lot of people um, really doubted him to. Uh, achieve everything that he's achieved even if he were to retire like the next minute he's achieved I think probably some of the biggest goals any tennis player would set out to achieve on the tour that is win a Grand Slam be world number one uh, uh win a master's title win the year ending championships I think he's done all of that uh, yes. so it you know he I'm not saying he should settle but Uh, I just think that he likes playing the disruptor role um, a lot more than um, he likes being the prime contender for the biggest titles.
1: I mean, I think that speaks, we were speaking about this earlier, to um, like sort of, The underdog like relationship he has with the crowd and the sometimes antagonistic relationship, I think that feeds into like the way that he handles pressure and the way that like his tennis is affected by expectation. Um, which is a thing that I find very interesting because I'm very fascinated by this mental element of tennis and the way that uh the mentality affects the results that Medvedev and obviously other players produce.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh fascinating discourse because it's one of those things that you never know right it's the, it's the biggest of tennis matches how is a player going to handle it any situation um and Medvedev is one of those players who just exemplifies that you never know how he's going to handle it and um, and that's the thing and like he could he could be flat or he could be explosive or he could be absolutely clinical and finish off an opponent um May I just want to ask before we one last question on Medvedev before we move on to team um so obviously you said you became a Medvedev fan in uh, 2021 how long had you been a Medvedev fan when he won the US Open because you must have thought I've picked the best player in the world
1: yeah um 2022 has been a lot rougher as a Medvedev fan I think I uh... I came in at a good time. So I started being really into him like at the ta- during the Olympics. I remember tuning into a match at 3 a.m. against Fanini. Um, I don't know why I was up so late but I remember watching this match and I was like, okay, yeah, like I can get behind this. Um, And it was when he was like, if I die in this heat, is the ITF going to be responsible? That was like the moment it clicked for me. I was like, I love this man. Like, this is exactly how I react to heat. This is so relatable. So during the Olympics, obviously like he didn't do as well in the Olympics as he would have liked. So I was like, okay, like, He's not like, you know, like we're not dealing with like an extremely dominant player here, but like I can work with this. And then he had that North American hardcourt season. And I was like, wow, this is great. I'm having such a good time. Like all of these titles are coming out of nowhere. And I think um, in 2022, I realized how just how much I took for granted. um, Just the level of season he had in 2021, which was astounding, honestly.
0: I mean, you're talking to a man who became a Roger Federer fan in 2007. Uh, So, um, taking titles for granted is not something that's new to me.
1: Yes, this is
2: actually this is actually a topic I just started writing an article about today. um, In cherishing the peaks of our favorite players, doesn't really apply to Roger, Novak, and Rafa because they still dominate the game, even when they were out of their peaks. But yeah, it's. uh, how I've been feeling as a Diego and a team fan recently. Um, so I'll hopefully try and get that finished. But yeah, that really relates exactly to, to what you guys are saying. Um, you never know when that top level of a player is going to go away for a bit or never come back. And it's important to really, really just, you know, get the most out of, out of that when it happens, because you never know if it's, if it's going to come back again.
1: That's uh, one of the things that I love about sport in a way. I mean, sometimes I hate it when it doesn't go my way, but the endless possibilities and the fact that you never quite know what's going to happen and this uncertain element, I think really makes it special. And that's what distinguishes sport from maybe like other things like a TV show or something. Um, And I, I love endlessly speculating about what could happen. But obviously, it's sad when things don't go your way.
0: Drama of sport is what pulls me in. I'm far more likely to put sport on than a scripted drama because it's it's so much less predictable. Um, well, even Death Doctor Who next, even Doctor Who, especially <laughs> Doctor Who. I I love that show, but that is so <laughs> it is pretty predictable. Apart, you might get the one episode anyway. Wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after I'm really looking forward to your article that's you. um coming out i um, i really want to read it hopefully you finish it um yes so and I will it hopefully not
3: go in the trash shortsman right? and buyers out of the article uh, that would be- Byers is
2: mentioned and shortsman is going to get a big a very big chunk of it i think but yeah um oh. Byers is more mentioned cuz i mentioned just like up and coming players that are starting to take the reins a bit and he gets a small mention and is this for popcorn? Yes. Or is it for... Okay. So No, it's for, um, it for popcorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice bit of problem. Okay.
0: Then. Keep <laughs> an eye on the Popcorn Tennis website um, for Jethro's article um, coming to you soon. And keep an eye on the Popcorn Tennis website for content from all our other writers. Um, we don't just make the podcast to promote the site, um, but um, I think you'll get our... You enjoy thinking and talking about tennis, it's a great place to to follow. Um so let's talk about let's move on to our other player that we're discussing today. Um so we're talking about favourites and Death Ray's been mentioning um his love for Dominic team um the uh who I will say uh, could because Owen is not on the call does have an awesome single-handed backhand. Um yeah even also- even
2: Owen can't deny the backhand of team um, he, yeah, it's, it's incredible. He's it a brilliant backhand. And the forehand is monstrous as well, let's be fair.
0: When that team forehand's yes. going, it is a sight. Uh, and look, I like team. I've definitely been rooting for him to do better than he has been. Um, a lot of it hasn't been his fault. He's either run into a player who is much more comfortable in their sort of home environment, be it Nadal at Roland-Garros so or Djokovic at the Australian Open, um, or he's been really unfortunate in the last couple of, well, it is the last couple of years, or well, definitely the last 18 months um, with injury um, and other things. Uh, but Jethro, talk to us. When did you become a Dominic team fan and
2: how did that happen? So it was back in 2016 now, um, and I've been a tennis fan pretty much in my life, but, you know, there was always a raffer for me. There was no, like, I always liked other players a lot, you know, like Leighton Hewitt and Andy Roddick and Songer and Padasco. Like, I had a lot of players I really liked, but Nadal was just my number one. Absolutely loved it. And then, I don't know, I don't really know what changed, but I tuned into one of the Golden Swing matches, I think. And Rafa was playing this guy called Dominic Thiem. I'd heard his name floating about, you know, he was around top 30 at the time. And he, I think he'd recently switched rackets. He used to hit with a head and then he was on the Babel app pure strike. and had Really cool colourings on it. And um, This was the old black and red one. And I tuned into this match and I would never really watched team play before. And he was just absolutely crushing the ball and like properly giving it to Nadal on play. And I'd never seen anyone really do this. You know, there was that, there was a match with Söderling that Nadal lost infamously at, the, at Roland Garros. But there wasn't really many times in Nadal's career that he'd just been completely hit off a play court. And I was watching team just like smoke backhands down the line, destroy forehands all over the court. And I was like, God, this guy, this guy is something special. I was like, how am I just watching him? So, uh, and then he won that match. And then I just kept my eye on him. I watched him in Acapulco and he, you know, he destroyed... Dimitrov and Bernard Tomek back to back and he was just playing such good tennis and got to like Indian Wells and I already consider myself a very big fan and he lost to Djokovic three and three but I mean this is back when team was still quite young I think he was about 22 23 so still fairly young and it wasn't a bad loss really he played some good tennis Um, and he played Rafa in Monte Carlo and hit two ridiculous backhand winners that I've seen on Tennis TV highlights, you know, for years since. And um, I, was just, I was just loving the guy. And when it came to Roland Garros, I was like, I'm kind of rooting for Tina as much as I'm rooting for Nadal. And I was like, considering I only started watching a few months ago, this is very unprecedented for me, I guess. And he played amazingly. And I that was Nadal withdrew after beating Sam Groth because he had a wrist injury, so he had to withdraw from the tournament. And, So all my attention went to team and he played amazingly against Goffan in the quarterfinals and then came up against Djokovic, lost in straight sets, but it was a valiant effort. Um, And he just got better and better. Um, He wasn't really doing a whole lot on the hard courts, but, you know, 2016 post-French Open, he still beat Federer on the grass. He won the Stuttgart title. Um, So I was like, I've made a good choice. This guy's this guy's the real deal. and it, it wasn't really until he got rid of them to Breznik and hired Nicholas Massou that his hardcore game really stepped up a notch, you know. As soon as he hired Nicholas Massou, he won Indian Wells, beat uh, Roger Federer in the final. And, yeah, it was, it was just amazing. And I just, I just love his game. I think he's a, good, he's a really good guy. And, you know, he comes across really, really well. And he's got some great friendships with certain players. But, um, yeah, his tennis just wows me every time I watch it and I was waiting a long time for a slam so yeah the 2020 US Open was amazing really um, not so much an experience as watching the final because that was incredibly painful especially because I had work the next morning and you know I'm up at 2am and him and Zverev are just barely hitting the ball over the neck because they're both so nervous um, it, was, it was
3: great tension but uh, 65 yeah, miles per hour second serves. Sort of, I remember that
2: yeah, I mean, oh my goodness. She, well, I mean, team was dreadful in the first two sets, and then he picked as soon as he picked his level up a bit, he was clearly the much better player. But yeah, that final set was torture. Um, mm-hmm. and it was especially heartbreaking though, because he couldn't, you know, he couldn't celebrate in front of fans. He, you know, it was during COVID, so he just fell to the floor, and you know, you can just hear like a few claps from her you know, from his team and a few people who have wandered in to watch, but there's no crowd screaming for him and, you know, given he'd already played in three grand slam, I think it was three grand slam before that, you know, it was, it was a shame that he finally gets over the line and, you know, there's nothing to there's no one to, like, cheer him on,
3: really, as, like, a big crowd goes. I even heard the racket touch the ground. That's how bad it was. Yeah.
2: yeah.
3: It was wow. dead he, he didn't deserve that, for sure. I, I, he deserved a back Packed Arthur Ashe Stadium, much like what Daniil had the year after. Yeah, what Carlos this year.
2: Yeah, no, it was it was a real shame, but um, yeah, and you know, it was. I, I think a lot of people kind of, you know, had their say on that tournament with Djokovic. You know, getting kicked out for uh for the lines for the lines judge incident. Um, but I think Team had already proven himself against. You know, against Nadal and Djokovic. You know, he'd uh, he'd beaten Djokovic twice at the French Open by this point. He'd beaten Rafa in Australia, and he was two sets to one up on Djokovic in that Australian Open final. And you know, he lost, but you know, he's he'd really proven himself by this point. You know, and he he deserved that so much. And um, unfortunately, since then, it's just been really bad luck since then, really. Um, but. Things are looking up now, I would say, since, uh, you know, he's finally gathering some good momentum since the injury, which we've been waiting for for a long time, because his return was really, really difficult. Um, and what, and, yeah, I don't really know. I didn't really expect it to, to, to take as long as it did, but it's been quite an amazing turnaround the last few months, for sure.
3: Yeah, yeah and for should, sure. Uh, sorry.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think,
2: yeah, uh, and
0: you know, we talked about Team's explosive game, and I think I ranted maybe about it before you did, Jethro. Um, But yeah, you were right about his personality. I think he's friends with pretty much everyone on the tour. He's friends with Diego, right?
2: He is very good friends with Diego, and that's actually one of the reasons that I became such a big fan of both of them at the same time. Um, I love their friendship and their matches as well. They have a really good way of matching up against each other.
0: Team doubles team, right?
2: Yeah, they actually got to a Masters 1000 final as a doubles, as uh-huh. a doubles team. Um, Which one was that? I can't, remember. I can't remember. I think it might have been Madrid or uh, it, was, it was on a clay court. But yeah. Um, yeah.
0: But you're right. He is such a positive personality in, in tennis. Um, and I think one of the exciting things about team was well still is is that at his peak, he does he is able to take it to Nadal and Djokovic, who are the two absolute greats at the top of the mountain. Um and uh yeah, so he's had some incredible matches. I mean he's five setter against Novak in that semi in 2019. Uh the Pron Gauss is brilliant. He went five with Rafa, okay. Lost that one in US Open 2018. Um and his matches against both of them in the ATP finals of 2020 are iconic. I think he had the match of the tournament against was it Rafa um in the round robin or
2: Novak. It was- he went straight sets against Rafa, but it's often regarded as one of the best straight sets, best of three matches ever. Because the quality was ridiculous. But yeah, the um 2019 and 2020 three set matches with Djokovic were insane. Like I could watch those like those two playing their best tennis. I could watch them play any day of the week. They it's just I think like for me Djokovic is greatest defender of all time. I don't think there's much question about it. I think in the last you know 15 years, Rafa and Murray have been up there as well. But um Djokovic wins it every time for me. And team is probably one of the best offensive players that we've seen for the last 15, 20 years or so. And to see them match up so well is just glorious. And like watching team just go at him and at him and at him just finally hit a winner and Djokovic just like, what, how are you still hitting the ball at hundred miles an hour in a, on every ball? Like no one does that. Um, yeah. The look on Djokovic's yeah. face, it was one of those rallies, I think it was 2019 where team just crushed about six balls and then slid into a forehand, which still went like 90 miles an hour and Djokovic's face afterwards was a picture. He was just like, huh? What, what just happened? Um, and I love seeing him do that to people. Um, yeah, and that's what I want to see. I hate it though. Next year, <laughs> yeah, you've had a lot of you've had a lot of enjoyment for, from Djokovic, though. So we're allowed, we're allowed these small victories. It
0: definitely, and they are they are. I don't want to call them small victories because obviously he's won a slam, he's won a Masters one thousand event, and he's got some cracking match wins. Um, and he's a massive intent to play to watch given. As, as, as you've said, how he can consistently play while hitting 100 mile an hour winners on a regular basis. Um, I do sometimes think though that again, kind of I maybe alluded to earlier that team stats are almost too low for how good a player he is. That he's only got one, maybe not that he's only got one slam given the years, in, but he's only got one Masters 1,000. Um, and yeah. he doesn't and that one's not even on clay, which is, neither of them on clay, which is his best surface and when we think of. He's obviously a Barcelona champion. He's won some 250s. Um, but, yeah, that's something that uh, it, it baffles me a little bit. I don't know how you feel about it, Jethro.
2: Yeah, no, I completely agree because, you know, if I'm getting into a debate with someone over, like, who's the best from, you know, aside from, you know, the big three in like the most recent years, you know, I would want to say, I would want to say team, but I can't really back that up with that many stats. Like I say, yeah, he's won a slam and a master's 1,000. He's won five times or more against the big three, which is a crazy stat in itself. But yeah, like, you know, Zverev's younger and he has more titles than him. He's he's got way more master's titles. Medvedev's got more master's titles. And it's kind of bizarre. And I, I know that teams... I think one of the team's issues with winning clay masters is that he's beat, he can beat Nadal there, he can beat Djokovic there, but he hasn't been been able to put it all together for a whole week. And then, you know, injury got, injury got in the way, um, and he's just, and like you know he got to the, I think it was the final of Madrid, and he'd crushed Nadal again, and then he lost to Zverev, and he played shockingly, um, but Zverev was also very good in Madrid at the altitude, so you know. It's just been, yeah. It's it's really hard to explain uh, how he hasn't won a Masters one thousand, but he has won Indian Wells, which I never thought he'd win. That Madrid, Madrid final
3: actually, actually got away. Sorry, that Madrid, Madrid final t- reminds me of uh, that Madrid final reminds me of uh, the final in Turin last year between Medvedev and Zverev again, same score line, and the you know player who lost was just flat the entire time. Uh, and yeah. obviously, this is where it was pretty much peaking. Um, and he didn't lose serve in either of those matches, uh, which was, I think, you know, great performance from him, but you would expect a lot better from these guys. So there's one parallel between you know, these two, as far as at least uh, there's one match, two matches that come to my mind. And there's also another, um, I, I I would say, you know, sort of a regret the team would have is Rome 2017 I really thought he was going to beat Djokovic there, losing six-one-six <laughs> love in the semifinals. Was, yeah, yeah, uh, because I Novak was the one who uh, came, had to come back on that day and put, put put away Del Potro. Team had defeated Nadal the day before. Uh, Novak uh, started the matching as Del Potro that night. It, it, that uh, uh, that that day was rained out pretty much after. Uh, the next day, Novak comes back. He beats potro and he you know comes back that night, just annihilates Team. Uh, so maybe that's another uh, you know missed opportunity because I do think um, in in Rome, Team would have beaten Zverev. I mean, sure you could give Zverev uh, the altitude advantage in Madrid. He's won both of their matches there, but in Rome, I you know those are conditions, we expect Team to uh, beat Zverev. Um, so that's another I would say missed chance and other than that he has been quite underwhelming you know he's had losses to Verdasco and Fonini early on uh, in Rome I think Mm -hmm. back-to-back also Monte Carlo he made only uh, he made the quarterfinal only once Um, so yeah that's uh, but again I I do think that uh, back-to-back finals at Roland Garros and uh, what was it? Two uh, other semifinals and a quarterfinal more than makes up uh, for that. Um, makes up for, yeah. I would say, the criticism that people throw at him. I, I do think that the consistency he showed for uh, five years consecutively um, at that uh, at the biggest event on the surface is you know mind-boggling. Beating Djokovic twice, no less. Was twenty twenty also? I, I did think he would end up winning. Uh, if not for sh- not for um playing out of his mm-hmm. mind, I think that match where well, it was more than five hours, five hours fifteen minutes or something like that. Uh, yeah, again, team had his chances to probably close it out in four. Uh, so did Schwartzman, if we're being honest. Um, but yeah, I think that was probably his best chance to win Roland Garros. I would say, even though he was two or three rounds short there.
2: Yeah, that was 2020 was a was an interesting one because. He was fresh off, fresh off winning the U.S. Open, and they went straight to you know the COVID-delayed French Open, and the conditions were really heavy, and he can still do well there. But someone like Diego or Rafa or Djokovic, who like is a very different caliber of player, the team thrives a bit more there. And yeah, he he had that really really tough battle with Hugo Gaston, who just drop shotted him to Smithereen's for four and a half hours or more however long it was. And as a team fan, it was a painful watch because, you know, every other ball was just, you know, dropping just just over the net and teams having to scramble for his life. And, you know, I think it was just his pure that willpower that got him through that match because he was like, I'm not losing to this guy in France. I I'm not like, who even is this guy? And I guess I was great fun to watch, but that would have been a really Really bad loss. Um, and yeah, he was a bit tired against Diego, I think. And you know, that was kind of the US Open that, that match with Gaston so catching up with him. But I'm still gonna give full credit to Diego. I thought he played amazingly. Um and you know, 2020 Diego was amazing. You know, he'd just beaten Rafa in Rome, you know, a couple of weeks before he reached, you know, the top eight, he made the NBA finals. Like it wasn't a bad loss, really. But yeah. I think 2020 could have been could have been I, and it depends really you know because because of the US Open and the timings and everything it's hard to really know if that was Tim's best chance to win it you know we never know if he's going to win it in the future but there's a lot more contenders now so I guess we'll wait and see on that
1: um just like sort of looking at like the meta archivist career like we talked about with Medvedev. um I don't remember if it was you that um made the claim that he can be considered more of a late bloomer than Daniil was. Um, I was wondering if you could like run me through that because that was a very interesting uh, statement. And I'm interested in this sort of comparison of the meta arcs.
3: Uh, yeah, I would say that because Team uh, was well into his mid-20s when he first won a big title. Uh, and then I think it was almost 28, was it? No, tw- 27 uh, when he won his first Grand Slam. Uh, or am I getting all the years mixed up? Yeah, he was. He was twenty-five yeah. when he won Indian Wells, and almost twenty-seven when he won the U.S. Open. He was obviously there for a while. I think he I, he didn't again another player who didn't peak as early as uh, Alexander yeah. Zverev. With Stefano Sitsipas did uh, against Zverev was a player. I think they already had a rivalry established for many years. Even though Zverev was a teenager for. Uh, you know, quite some time. It's from 2016 all the way to uh, 2018, they did have a, uh, a rivalry between them. And of course, it did intensify in 2020. They played twice at Grand Slams. He still was beating him. His head-to-head is still eight and three against Varev. I think it's six and four against Sitsipas, if I'm not mistaken, or five and three, something like that. Uh, I know there's a differential of two in favor of team there. Uh, but he's, uh, for some reason, he's not had the same kind of success as uh, you know, Zverev and Tsitsipas have had at a much younger age. Or even in general, I think Tsitsipas does have, uh, he has multiple uh, titles uh, at a Masters level, uh, but you the know, team only has that one Indian World's title. Uh, Tsitsipas and team, of course, are a bit similar. Like, they do make what feels like quite a few big finals and, they lose more often than not. Um, Medvedev, he's, um, I think team's record in big finals is two wins and seven losses. Uh, team, Medvedev has won what, six big titles. He's lost, I, I do know that he's lost three grandstand finals. Um, I don't, I think he's lost a Masters final and a final at the ATP final. So what, it's six wins and five losses. It's a really good record to have um, mm-hmm. in big finals. So, uh, yeah, team, it took a while for him to finally taste success at such a level where he was, again, beating uh, the likes of Nadal and Djokovic, but still falling short. Um, um, either either he beats Nadal, loses to Djokovic, or the other way around, or he beats Nadal and ends up losing to Zverev, uh, like we spoke about in Madrid. Uh, I don't know if that's really bad luck in a way, or if it's just him not being clutch enough, in some of those matches. But yeah, I think that's kind of the reason why it's taken a while. And it it is worth mentioning that a lot of those losses came when he was with uh, Gunter Bresnik, uh, his former coach. And under Masu, he's been, I would say, a lot better, a lot more clutch, a lot more versatile throughout the surfaces. Still came up short, a little short in the ATP finals, uh, finals back-to-back in 2019 and 2020. Uh, So, yeah, that is why I think he's more of a late bloomer. Um, Not as much as Stan Wawbrinka is, but still, you know, comparatively, he's very much a late bloomer um, as far as these four players are concerned.
0: I'm going to inject an element of controversy into this uh, podcast. I don't think Dominic Team is a late bloomer. Um, If you look at his age um, of when he broke through in 2015... He was 21, end of the year 22. By the end of the year, he'd won three 250 titles, and he was top 20 in the world, which would put him kind of in my mind about the same sort of league as um, similar kind of league as Medvedev, and and there's and others sort of maybe in those top 10 who who would go on to challenge the big three, the big four, Um, and then the following year he started winning 500s. Age 22 to 23. 2017 is when he got his first Roland Garros semi final, he beaten the DAL. Um, So that's around about the age Medvedev began to make his breakthrough. And yeah, Medvedev was winning Masters titles. It was a slightly bigger scale, but um, in terms of he was getting sort of more headline results. Uh, But he was also still running into problems whenever he ran into um, Djokovic and the DAL. Yeah, he was occasionally beating them, but so was Dean around about a similar point in his career so I think the only thing that distinguishes them is, is a lot of this was happening um, at maybe some of the bigger events in comparison and maybe that's because of the age of, that those players were at but I think team had definitely established himself as a top player and one to watch probably about the same age as Medvedev if not slightly earlier um, where we would probably expect players in the men's game to have uh, developed um, other than that your analysis, I would, I would, I would agree, but I just, I just wanted to throw that out there as actually what he'd achieved before that point was actually pretty impressive. I mean, winning three titles um, in a season, um, even at 250 level, is actually fairly rare. Not many people actually do that um, over the course of the year. Um, so I think I just want to throw that out there um, just to put a nice little of counterpoint in there and entertain the listeners.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, think I would, I would agree. I, I would really say I don't think. E- oh, sorry, <laughs> <No way. All laughs> right. I don't think that either of them can be really classed as late bloomers because they, you know, they're around their mid twenties were already very, very good. I would say more of a late bloomer is kind of Cam Norrie if we're talking relevant players right now. Um, you know, I know, yeah, I um, Yeah, and yeah, he's fallen away a little bit, but he's been one of the most consistent players on tour in the last couple of years. Um, and that was from the age of kind of 25, 26 onwards. So, yeah, and like a Botic band design shop, you know, broke through at the US Open last year and, you know, he was 26. You know, I kind of lost them as the late bloomers, not people who've already kind of established themselves as a one to watch, you know, in their early 20s. But I think our perception of it is kind of skewed because Zverev broke through when he was 18, Sitsabas broke through when he was 19, Alcaraz, 18, you know, emirat Alikarnou, 18, Hogaroon is 19, Sinner... All these guys and girls who are breaking through at these really young ages, I think kind of skewers our perception a little bit of what a late bloomer really is.
1: Um, I do think it's also interesting that you've mentioned like Cam Nori because he came through the um, like college tennis program. And I think like the college tennis program is this really interesting variable in the tennis landscape when you compare it to like most of the other ways that players get into tennis. And I do think that contributes to some late bloomer-ism, but that's a whole other
2: topic yeah i know college tennis that's a good point actually and yeah you get like steve johnson you know and the, those kind of players who if, yeah, i think country, john isner
3: country. as well i think was 22 uh, he was
1: Collins. College yeah, Collins, Collins.
3: yeah
2: yeah 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 you know, she's yeah she's another one you know she's played some fantastic tennis this year and yeah,
0: yeah i think jethro Henry makes a good point out.
3: there because when we say late bloomer um i think you know bear in mind that i'm speaking Purely uh, uh, with respect to uh, having success uh, at a big stand by having success, of course, I'm setting up a higher standard than expected. Maybe it's a bit unfair from my side, but of course, if we're discussing these four players, uh, we we, we got to, uh, I guess, set an even benchmark for all of them. Um, I meant, you know, obviously raising a trophy by the end of uh, maybe a fortnight of tennis, uh, best of five uh, sets tennis, or at the end of uh, you know a big event, a masters and ATP finals, which it took it did take team a while. Um, although Medvedev did have a similar trajectory at at a given age uh, compared to Dominic Team. Uh, uh I would say that he did start to have success a lot earlier. I would say at least three years earlier, uh, than Dominic team did. At the turning point was pretty much the Cincinnati. Final. Sure, he had did David Goffin in the final, but he did beat Novak Djokovic from a set-down in the semifinal. Uh, and every big title, maybe except for Toronto, where, sure, there were quite a few you know, top players, like Djokovic, Nadal, and Zverev missing. Sitsipas going on in the semifinal. Um, you know, that was, I, that's probably the only big title of Medvedev that you could say where he's uh, not upset uh, any player. Um, obviously, the ATP finals uh, title was iconic because uh, it's the only player to ever win that tournament beating the big three, uh, which I think it's going to last that way for a while. Uh, and that's, I guess, maybe Felix Auger al has other ideas this year, beating Carlos Alcaraz, Alcaraz. Um, Rafa Nadal, and Stefano Sitsipas, which you know I wouldn't put it uh, uh, way above him. But yeah, uh, I should. That is what I meant by you know, quote unquote, late bloomer.
0: Talking about comparisons, um, let's look take a bit of a bigger picture uh, look at um, Team and Med for Dev in comparison to others in their generation, which we've done a little bit on this podcast already. Um, obviously, by generation we mean in terms of expanding that to players born in the 1990s um, and that sort, of, that sort of era. So, got team born in 1993, Daniel Medvedev born in 1996. Um, so, May, how do you kind of see these two players in comparison to um, others that have reached the top that were born in the 90s? So, you were thinking Sixty Path, Um, I've probably missed a couple of people off there. Um, Nori Schwartzman, maybe if you want to throw those in the mix her catch, um, what is it that makes them stand out, and what do you think it is that maybe sets them sets them yeah sets them apart basically?
1: I mean, the like very obvious element here is that slam title. Um, I mean, even when I was first getting into the tennis space, what I would hear about was how team had a U.S. Open title, and then by the end of 2021, how Daniil had a slam title and this really just sets them apart because obviously with Alcaraz winning the U.S. Open, we're now moving into players born in the 2000s winning slam titles. But in 2021, I was like, wow, like they're breaking through, like they're they're younger than the big three. They're starting to break up this monopoly. And obviously that monopoly had been challenged before in other ways and other tournaments. Um, and, players that are not in the big three have won some titles before, but never this young. And I think that uh, has really set them apart from the rest of the generation. I mean, even looking at slam finals reached, I don't remember like the specific statistic, but it's like Daniil and Casper basically of the players now. And I think team don't quote me on this. i um, having reached multiple slam uh, finals within like the same year. It's a very like small group of players. So I think that alone is already on, like, a big stage um, setting them apart. But I do think it's interesting the way that Daniil and maybe Team are marketed in comparison to, like, Sitsipas and Zverev. Um, Like, I'm not 100% a lore expert on tennis marketing, obviously. But the way that Sitsipas and Zverev had really been pushed forward as, like, the next big thing. uh, The rhetoric, I didn't really see as much there with Medvedev. I'm not sure exactly how it was with Team. But I think that like this disparity in marketing made it seem almost more sudden to me the success that Medvedev had in comparison.
2: Yeah, um, I completely agree. Medvedev was not hyped up by the media at all, um, and team wasn't really. I think, I think it was more like pure tennis fans just, just like you know, seeing what they saw and think saying, yeah, this guy is this guy's amazing. Like he's beating Nadal and Djokovic regularly, but. You know tennis's biggest marketing ploy is all about you know tennis tv really that's their main that's their main bit really is posting hot shots and it's either hyping up it's been hyping up where it sits fast, and they hyped up Felix a lot, hyped up Alcaraz a lot, and then apart from that it's just curious trick shots from four years ago or <laughs> so something like that and um yeah, team was never really hyped up, but he I think what him and Medvedev have done is just let their tenants do the talking, um, mostly really. And they haven't really needed that hype. But yeah, like, I mean, if you go on Twitter, like you'll see so many, you know, there's like a huge Sitsapass fan base you know, enormous. There's so many of them. We don't really see as many team fans. I see quite a lot of Medvedev fans, to be fair. But yeah, like Sitsapass, I think he's been marketed very highly, but also he's marketed himself very well I don't think intentionally you know with his bizarre cryptic tweets and his but then he's got you know he's got the vlogs and you know he's a very good looking guy and posts like you know cool pictures and he like he's he has a lot of interest outside tennis and I think that appeals to a lot of people whereas you know you get yeah. someone like Rublev whose life is tennis 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 where it's it's very you know it's very different really
1: Yeah I think that Sitsipas absolutely just like the way that I got into tennis he's got this appeal like outside of just the tennis and I think he's a very like marketable person to begin with and he also evidently does take social media seriously which not every player does and I think that really helps boost engagement and so I think that does alter like the way that people perceive him because I'll just be like at a tennis tournament queuing with some people that maybe don't watch tennis as much as I do and the players that they tend to bring up are like Zverev and Sitsipas and like not even really Daniil when I went to Bercy last year I was queuing with multiple people who were all bringing up Zverev and Tsitsipas and not like the guy who'd want to slam, which I found very fascinating.
0: I think Team has also been a little bit disadvantaged in that when he arrived and sort of the eighth bracket he's in, because he is, if you shrink the generational uh, definition to maybe players born in the first half of the 90s, um, he stands out by miles to other players more in 93, 94, 92, um, even maybe even 95. But um, with, he kind of came along whilst everyone was still hyping up. Grigory Dimitrov, Milos Raonic and Kei as the next big thing in the new generation that was going to overthrow or we're, were waiting in the wings for the big three or actually it was still the big four then, the big four to fade. Um, And then he got disadvantaged by that. And then by the time he did step up and um, sort of the big four started only focusing on slams and stopped caring about Masters 1000s, Medvedev and Zverev and Zidzipas had showed up and were wowing everyone because they were the new young thing. And obviously Kirios was still there in the mix um, for his flashy shot making. Um, But he's, so he's always been a little bit of a disadvantage in terms of maybe the, the marketing side of things and, uh, but like you said he's definitely let his tennis do the talking
2: yeah totally um and yeah like new fans of tennis won't even know about the lost gen you know people who started watching the last couple of years might not know who Milos Raonic even is but um you know it hit that era when him and Dimitrov and Nishikori everyone thought that they were going to be the next ones and now it's now it sits past Medvedev and Zverev and now it's Alcaraz Sinner auger Rune it's it's a constant cycle, and you know, I won't be surprised if in four years there's some new batch of 18 year olds who are just, you know, being churned out as these absolutely unbelievable players. Um, and well, I think what if uh, of Arthur
3: Indonesh becomes a late bloomer? Who
2: else? He's
1: good.
2: <laughs> he's, he's, a, <laughs> he's a good player, Indonesh. I've been really impressed with him this year. Yes. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Finally, somebody else. Yes.
2: I say because he beat Diego Schwartzman, the greatest tennis player of all time, on an indoor okay. court. So, of course, yes. of course, I've got to uh, hype him up. No, he's, he had a really good start Another... to the year. He's made, like, four consecutive indoor quarterfinals. Yeah. And so, yeah, Another he's been tennis player.
3: Yeah, I remember um... he made the final, was it in Adelaide, lost to Kokinakis? Um, the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we come back <laughs> so, and record it so... after we did next postcards at some point. Yeah, we should. <laughs> Yes. Reason to bring May back.
1: Yes, I could go on, but... Yes.
2: <laughs> you are probably the only Vrindal X-San I've ever seen or heard about on Twitter or yes. just in general, which are
1: Uh, Yeah, like I didn't even... Well, obviously, I didn't know about other people stanning him. I got into him at Bercy in 2021. I was like, oh, this is cool. Um, But yeah, no, I really like college tennis players, I think. I don't know why, but they just really appeal to me, so... To what get you and Ashley on tennis.
0: the podcast to discuss college tennis, um, I think that's a an episode that'd be well worth doing. Um, Shrihari, I want to ask you, um, going back to Med for Dev and team, and them compared to others, um, is there anything about their games that you think has helped them take that step above in terms of results compared to others?
3: Yeah, I mean, when, in the cases of both of both players, they've had at least one of, of one, if not more, aspects uh, in their game that really either sets them apart from majority of the tour or puts them right up uh, right uh, uh, on par with the likes of Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal, um, Federer when he you know, during the time he was active. Uh, look at Dominic team; he had uh, one of the best forehands um, in his prime. Uh, it, it it matched up uh, to the likes of uh, Rafael Nadal's and uh, Roger Federer's, you know, of course, Roger Federer had uh, declined significantly on that wing, I would say, when Dominic Thiem sort of burst into the scene. But yeah, his forehand and ground strokes in general, the pace he's able to generate, uh, the way it would just completely uh, knock uh, opponents off their shoes, uh, so to speak. And then you have Medvedev. Uh, one of the best movers on tour at the moment, one of the best defenders, one of the best counter punchers, uh, and not none even though it's not the case this year, one of the best uh, uh, you know when it comes to serve. Uh, that was a huge weapon, especially um, in the twenty twenty to twenty one phase that he had, uh, and of course the backhand easily top five. Uh, so uh, of course I'm not saying that the other players haven't had that. In, As part of their game, like you know, Siti Paz has an elite forehand. Zverev has an amazing backhand, but uh, I do think that on their sort of uh, on the on the days where they are not at their best, these two players especially have had to more heavily rely on um, a a single shot. Um, or a single weapon that they have in their arsenal that you know would uh, what that w- they would consider to be the most reliable, um, but that wouldn't be the case with Medvedev and team because they just have so much more going on for them. Uh, as far as they, if you just look at the the individual game uh, and the individual battles that they win, they are able to at least more than Zverev and uh, maybe even Tsitsipas are. They're able to win matches even in spite of despite not playing at their best. Uh, maybe, yes, team has had some strange losses. I remember one clearly um, to Philippe Krajinovic, just before he won the U.S. Open, he lost. He got absolutely smoked 6-2, 6-1 when the Western Southern Open was played uh, at Flushing Meadows and not Cincinnati because of um, COVID in 2020. But, yeah, that's what I, that is what I feel um, you know really sets them apart from these two. And uh, game-wise, and I also would uh, say that mentality-wise they're superior. Uh, they do uh, tend to believe in themselves um, more than these two do when things are not exactly going their way. Um, Tsitsipas, I should say, however, like sometimes he's quite a dangerous player when he's playing from behind. Medvedev also more so. Uh, we did watch the US Open 2019 final. He had no business going deep into the fifth set in that match. But yeah, I think they are definitely superior in more ways than one to uh their contemporaries, and that is why they've you know tasted grand stamp success already. Uh while you know the other two have had just i have made just one grand stamp final each in their career so far.
2: Yeah, no, it's um I I completely agree. I think they are. They are apart from Sitzbasin's I do find Team and Medvedev can have these really bizarre losses. They're quite similar in that way. Um, you know, Medvedev losing to R- rink recently and he had that loss to Kevin Anderson that you often talk about, Shri. And, you know, and then he went on to do really, really well for the rest of the that in- indoor hardcore season. And um, yeah, team teams had some very bizarre losses over the years, but he's also had there's been so much more positive than the negative with these with these strange losses. You know, I was shocked when he lost to Hubert Hercatch in Miami and it was just after he won Indian Wells. Um, and that was kind of when Hercatch announced himself and then Hercatch beat him another two times. Um, and then team finally, you know, and this is... And we're not... Teams, you know, he's not in his prime right now. He's still working his way back. But the fact that he managed to beat Hercatch, a guy who, would you know had a really good matchup with him, you know, 3-0. And, you know, in this co- comeback process, he's two match points down on the second set of the middle the Hardcore against a massive server. And he somehow just pulls a rabbit out and turns things around. So that was very, very positive. Um, and, yeah, I'm j- I would just, I would really like to see more matches between the Team and Medvedev because, obviously, their match in Vienna the team just looked a bit gassed and Medvedev was really, really excellent. And team just, you know, he was he was keeping up really well in the first set, but you know, he just he just wilted a bit and Medvedev was just so solid and so good. Um so yeah, I hope 2023 brings some very exciting team of Medvedev matches because they're such a fascinating matchup to watch.
0: Me too, especially as uh, yeah, tennis is better off with them playing well, with as many people involved playing well as possible because There'll be no shortage of good stories. And I think the point a point Shrahiri made that um, I thought was interesting was um, that both Med for Dev and team can win not playing at their best. And I think that's definitely true. And actually, I don't think I've seen Six Pass do that. I haven't seen Svarov do that. I'm not saying that they haven't. I just haven't seen it. Or you don't hear about it in the same way. Um, which I, I certainly find... see
2: Zverev do that more often than Sitsapas. I think when Sitsapas is going wrong, it's going really wrong, you know, with Galan at the US Open. Whereas mm-hmm. I think Zverev's issue a lot of grand slams, you know, because he's, he's gone, I don't know he's injured right now, but he got so much better, you know, from that mm-hmm. Olympics win. But up until that point, there were so many grand slams where he's being dragged to five sets by players that he should be beating at that point of his career. But he just about gets over the line, so Zara can do it more than Sitspass. I would say, but yeah, no, I, I do agree as well.
0: Yeah, but that's fair, Actually, yeah, I, and that's that's fine. I, I stand corrected. I think, yeah. I just I, I now you mentioned it, I, yeah. I, I see your point, yes. So Zara just has different issues, but um with um but like Berettini, who's probably another one from this generation who would be classed as a top player. Um, he definitely can't win uh he struggles to win when he's not playing his best unless it's on grass um and basically he's unbeatable by anyone who isn't know about Djokovic um, let's be honest Srihuri
3: yeah uh I don't even know if this is a shade but I can't even tell when Berrettini playing at his best or when he's playing uh when he's not playing that well or when he's playing subpar really uh, Anyway, I
2: actually do see what you mean, and I, I, I like Not, I like not throwing
3: shade at all. Just and I don't
2: think that, to opinion. me, that's not very shady. I don't think we have seen Berrettini as best yet. He never puts together a know. full performance, but he sometimes does. But, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, he's made, like, five consecutive Grand Slam quarterfinals, and he's not been playing as well as he can throughout all of that. Yeah, I think Australian Open, he played some fantastic tennis but, um, and Wimbledon last year. But I'm still yet to see a complete Berrettini performance and I, it's down to the backhand for him. Yeah. He needs to...
3: Yeah, I'm yet to see a Berrettini better. backhand. So we'll start. It's <laughs>
1: uh-huh. <But>, um, <laughs> got better, but yeah the thing about Baratini though, he is a marketable player. Like I see adverts for him just like on the tube or I was at Queens with my mother and she was talking with like five other middle-aged women in the stands about like Barrettini and like his like recent photo shoot. And like that was the level of casual exposure I have not seen for a tennis player Outside like the big three and like sits a pass So he's good for marketing I will, I will put it that way Back Probably the boss
3: Hall. branding I would say
1: Yes I mean part of it he, is the yeah. boss branding For sure But I think he just like I mean he looks like a model Like I'm, I'm just gonna Strong assertion I know But um, I think if marketed correctly like He's a very Very marketable player
0: yeah, I mean, exposure is. is definitely a good summary of the marketing that we've seen him
2: involved in.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: Well, he's <laughs> yes. very popular in the UK with, the, with all the British months. Yes. Queens yes. and Wimbledon crowd, absolutely. Yes. And he's very, absolutely. very nice as well. He's a very and he's very charming. And that goes yes. a very long way when you've got the looks and he's you know, he's a big guy as well. I think, you know, he's he's just very popular for a lot of reasons. And people don't really some people don't really enjoy his tennis, but I, I personally do. I love his serve, <laughs> his forehand. I think it's awesome. Um, I would love so, to see him develop a good backhand because when there's been certain matches where he's hitting his backhand really well, there was, um, I think it was Bustad or Bishdad semi-final against a Team this year, and he was just crossing off both wings. Of it was just like he's really quite a scary player when he's hitting the ball off both wings as well, and he's serving like he does. He's quite scary. He can be. He can be really, really good. and That's why he's he's the only player born in the 1990s I think or well, I think that might have changed now but for a while he was the only player in the 1990s to have reached the quarterfinals of every single Grand Slam
3: he still is still is yeah yeah Medvedev and team an haven't made thing. it past the fourth round at Wimbledon same with Zverev yeah Sitsipas hasn't made it uh, past the third round at the US Open fourth round at Wimbledon so yeah mm-hmm.
2: yeah.
3: yeah
0: just to jump in I, I'm just to jump in there, I would say uh, my mum is also one of those mums who's very, uh, Berrettini, very popular with Berrettini, or is very popular with. Not a conversation I was expecting to have. Uh, what I will also say is, actually, I think while we've been talking about Berrettini and his best, I think we're overlooking that five-set match he had with Alcaraz in Australia. And I think he played very well in that match, actually. So the whole of Alcaraz, who as we know, as the, as the year progressed, became an unstoppable force. And um, like holding off Alcaraz in five sets when it's something that other players weren't able to do was actually quite impressive, um, especially since he does have that backhand weakness. Um, but something else, someone else we just want to quickly touch on from this generation that we kind of briefly have it already is Ruud. Um, Again, I think I have seen Rude win when he's not playing his best, but it's very rare, again, in comparison to team in Medford, um, who much more prolific. But um, Rude is someone who maybe has made a bit more of an impact tennis-wise than Berrettini. Um, Jethro, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree with that. Um, I think Rude's, um, I guess, progression in the last year has been quite amazing. Uh, he has struggled since the US Open. I think he's in a bit of a slump. Uh, yeah, he lost to, I mean, he lost to Musetti today, who played brilliantly. I mean, it's not like an embarrassing loss. Um, and I know people are very, very, they're very short-term memory in, a, in tennis tennis fandom. And, you know, as soon as he loses a few matches on the indoor hardcourt, he's the worst world number two in the world, and he's a fraud. And he lo- locked his way to two slam finals. And like, He was playing fantastic tennis at the French Open and, at the US Open, and he deserved his place in those finals. And, you know, he lost to Alcaraz, and if he didn't play such a howl of a tie-break, that could have gone to five sets, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he's, he's doing great, and I think once he wins a title above 250 level, um, I think maybe people will start respecting him a bit more and taking him a bit more seriously. I, I think 2 sound finals is um, a, re- a remarkable achievement anyway, but you know, people... People are very demanding in their, in this in, in this industry, and they expect you know masters 1000 titles every every year. So we'll see. I think he's I think there's a long way to go, to Casper. Though I think he's he's doing really good. Uh, I'm sure I'm curious. Do you, where do
0: you rate Rude in comparison to Team and Meta Dev? Um, are there clearer limitations in him in his game compared to them? Maybe.
3: The backhand, for sure, uh, it's uh, very tentative. Too much side spin than he'd want. Uh, the serve has improved a lot, for sure. Um, but yeah, it, it all boils down not in the backhand. And I think uh, he probably, he doesn't defend as anyone nearly as well as Medvedev team do. Uh, or I would say even Sitsipas uh, is where I do. I think they're also really good defenders. Uh, but yeah. As far as Casper Ruud is concerned, it's just a matter of time before he eventually does clinch a title above a 250 level. Uh, I expected that after the US Open, he did hit a bit of a slump. He has evidently as well, losing to Mazzetti earlier today. Um, I think he won just one match and lost, I think, four. Um, you, it, it, it would be pleasantly surprising if he does get out of his group, regardless of which group he is in, in Turin. Uh, but yeah, I think if it, uh, if I were to compare him to team in Medvedev, even game-wise, I do think they are vastly superior. As as things stand, it could change. Uh, you know, maybe Casper Roode could uh, put a lot of training blocks in the offseason, you know, come out all guns blazing at the Australian Open, a slammy miss this year, uh, and despite which he's number four in the world. Um, but yeah, you just never know. Um, we saw that with Alcaraz, obviously not the same dynamic. Alcaraz was, you know, the teenage sensation. We all knew what he was capable of, uh, but yeah, you know, Casper, he's just. I think he's just about to turn 24. He still has a lot of years left. And one thing we could take away from Medvedev and team, and you know what we spoke about them for, I think, more than our at this point, is that it's never too late. Uh, 24 is definitely not a year where you would not not an age where you would be riding a player off or like expect them to stall. maybe that's when they would uh, enter their prime and even start to peak. Um, he was not really far off in some of the finals he lost. Miami he did take it to Alcraz in the first set. Uh, US Open he was he had two or three set points to lead two sets to one. Uh, in the final that that set i think really decided the outcome he played really well until i wouldn't even say until the very end just it was just one break that was decisive in that final so uh, that's one thing people tend to overlook he definitely is due um you know success at a much bigger stage than he has had success at so far in his career yeah and i i
0: think that's a good summary of it's never too late and i think root and his fans can take hope from that. I mean, he's got, we talked uh, talk a bit about his strength. Maybe his forehand is pretty strong. Um, he can do a lot with it. He can hit some winners. Maybe it's not quite as impressive as the team forehand um, or even the team backhand um, in terms of offensive capability. Um, and obviously, Medfordev's defence is legendary. Um, I, th- um, I think that certainly he's got the weaponry to do big things in 2023. Um, but let's circle back and um, talk about the two guys, um, as you mentioned, um, and i going to give the last word to May. Um, May, what are the, the stories, the narratives that you're looking forward to from both these players um, in 2023, but maybe even beyond if you want to go that far?
1: yeah okay yeah i'm unmuted now sorry um i think in both cases there's like a bit of a redemption arc obviously this is uh more the case for a team we saw with the injury um and the subsequent uh recovery but i think we're seeing more of an upward trend now and i'm really hopeful i'm manifesting perhaps this upward trend continues and it would be really cool to uh see him come back to the level that he was at before um and with medvedev i think the issue is more um on the mental side can he sort of cope with with the demons created at the 2022 australian open final um how is that going to go how is he going to perform in a world where he isn't the world number one or world number two anymore Um, And I think that's going to be the big question there. Um, But ultimately, I think we've got to look at the factor of this like next next generation now we've got Alcaraz, who's world number one, you know, we're looking at Runa, we're looking at Felix, who I always forget is technically next next gen. Um, and they're in contention in a way they weren't when Team was at his prime, when Medvedev even won the U.S. Open. Um, and I think that's going to be sort of the disrupting factor in these more upward arcs that I'm hoping to view from Team and Medvedev. Yeah.
0: And I'm looking forward to seeing their stories. I love a redemption story. Who doesn't? Yes. yes. Um, so, May, for those who may not be familiar with you, um, with your work, um, Do you want to do a bit of a plug for um, your Twitter and uh, maybe other
1: projects related to tennis that you have going on? Yes. Um, I don't think I can say my Twitter at without um, having to label this episode explicit, Um, but I do have a tennis blog called String Theory on Substack, .substack stringtheory.substack.com. And I really take more of a narrative approach to tennis. I'm more focused on the big meta narratives, the stories involved, um, even even the fashion involved in tennis, and so if you're interested in more of that approach, as opposed to like a statistical play-by-play approach, um, I would suggest checking it out.
3: I could still link yes. uh, your Twitter handle to you know, this podcast, um, along with um, uh, you know the website, the string theory as well. It's I just, not
1: bad. I want to be dirty with my username, basically. <laughs> so
2: there are worse out there. That is like like Isabel,
0: Isabel from Popcorn, there. <laughs> no, nah, well, depending on your, your view. Um, but <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, but you can go and find um, the rest of us at Twitter. Um, so um, just as a reminder, so you can find me at Nick underscore B Carter. Jethro, where can we find you? I am
2: Jethro underscore S B
3: and I'm Srihari Ravi
2: 12 well go
0: find us on Twitter come talk to us hope you enjoyed the podcast uh, we'll be back uh, sort of next week to review um, we'll have a couple of episodes coming out one reviewing uh, the events in Paris BC uh, and one talking about the outcome of the WTA finals we've got some great guests lined up for those um, I'm going to be talking WTA Srihari's going to be talking ATP um, so all looking forward to that um thanks so much for coming on shahiri jethro and thank you for guesting with us may and we will uh, i hope you enjoyed the episode we will see we will see you soon cheers guys thank you for listening